This week's episode is brought to you by Wink. Now, I hesitate to reveal this to you all, but I am a distinctly unclassy person. Wine, in particular, has always mystified me. But thanks to the fine folks at Wink, I no longer have to be such a déclassé fellow. They will curate fine wines for you based on your responses to a simple questionnaire and ship them right to your doorstop at fantastic prices. Now I can pretend to be a far classier person than I actually am and impress all my friends with my sophisticated wine tastes. And you can too. Wink is offering listeners for the podcast a $22 discount. Just use offer code History of Japan, that's one word, History of Japan, at checkout, or use the link at my website, IsaacMeyer.net. Check it out, have a bottle, and crack it open while you listen. We can be classy folks together. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 282, The Brothers Soga. Today I want to talk to you about sweet, sweet revenge. Specifically, I want to talk to you about one of the first and most famous instances in Japanese history of something called kataki uchi, or blood vengeance. This is a concept with an old heritage in Japan. The first instance in the Japanese historical record comes from the Nihon Shoki, the second written history of Japan ever, the first being the Kojiki, compiled in the year 720 CE. The story itself comes from the 400s and has to do with a hunting expedition undertaken by the imperial family. During that expedition, the semi-mythical emperor Yuriaku is supposed to have accidentally shot another imperial prince. That prince's two children then fled the clutches of the imperial family, swearing vengeance against Yuriaku. They would, unfortunately, never get their chance, as Yuriaku would die of natural causes before they got a chance to avenge themselves. What's more, he would die without issue, and as a result, one of those princes, Prince Ohoke, would actually end up on the imperial throne as Emperor Kenzo. And Kenzo would go on to proclaim his desire to demolish Yuriaku's grave to get his final vengeance on his father's killer, an otherwise unthinkable act against another person, particularly an emperor. Kenzo would charge his brother with this task. That brother, a cooler head than the emperor, would do merely superficial damage to the gravesite, fulfilling his duty to his lord but minimizing the impact of his actions. What's particularly fascinating about this first act of recorded revenge is that it was justified with reference to one of Japan's longest-standing cultural imports, Confucianism. The editors of Nihon Shoki put a long speech into Kenzo's mouth where he justifies his order of grave desecration through indirectly quoting one of the classic works of Chinese Confucianism, the Li Ji, or Classic of Rites. Specifically, the section in question is, quote, One should not live under the same heaven as an enemy who has slain his father. One should always have his sword on hand to deal vengeance against an enemy who has slain his brother. One should not live in the same state as an enemy who has slain his friend." Unquote. The text goes on to put into the mouth of Confucius the idea that a son whose father has been murdered should, quote, sleep on straw with his shield for a pillow, he should not take any office, he must be determined to not live with the slayer under the same heaven. 
if he meets the murderer in the marketplace or even the ruler's court, he should not have to go back for his weapon, but instantly attack him. And this is an idea being ascribed to Confucius, who is also quoted in different sources as having said, the least important part of any government is its military. I bring this up because one of the important things to understand about blood revenge is its grounding in Confucianism. This is not a uniquely Japanese idea, as the Liji itself states. After all, attacking someone in public is a serious crime, particularly in the ruler's own palace, but the Liji makes no bones about recommending precisely that. This idea was actually reflected in the law codes of Imperial China. Many of the major dynasties made at least some allowance in their laws for murder regarding an act of revenge committed against someone who had slain a family member. However, this licensing of revenge never reached the level in China that it would in Japan, where blood revenge took on a pretty central place in the ethos of the samurai class in particular. After all, for a warrior class, the idea of blood revenge lay at an intersection between two concepts central to warrior identity, the notion of proving one's own martial virtues by defeating your enemies, and demonstrating good ethical values, which is to say good Confucian values, through the honoring of one's parents. So today I want to explore this idea, this intersection, by looking at one of the most famous examples of Katakiuchi blood revenge in history, the story of the two Soga brothers. The setting of this particular story is Japan's 12th century, so it's important for us to remember precisely what's happening at this point in Japanese history. This is the period often described as marking the beginning of samurai rule over Japan, though really the samurai did not establish themselves as Japan's sole ruling authority until several centuries later. Specifically, the 12th century is the time of the military clashes between the Taira and the Minamoto, the decades-long on-again-off-again conflict that ended with the eventual destruction of the Taira family, and the ascension of Minamoto no Yoritomo as Japan's first samurai ruler, the first to take the title of shogun as a means of establishing independent political authority. This was an age of sweeping conflict, and the Soga family was, well, marginally involved in that. And here's where things get a little tricky. The oldest version of this story we have comes from a text called the Azuma Kagami, or the Mirror of the East, a history of Japan's first samurai government, which was compiled in the 1260s or so. This means the text itself is a little less than a century removed from the events it's depicting, and that remove poses something of a problem, particularly since the Azuma Kagami provides a relatively scant recounting of this particular story. The better-known version comes from a slightly later embellishment of what's in the Azuma Kagami, a document known as the Soga Monogatari, or Tale of the Soga, of unclear authorship. The nature of these sources thus makes it rather difficult to sort out the reality, such as can be determined, of the story of the Soga brothers from the fictionalized and romanticized stories built up around him. So what do we actually know of the brothers Soga? Well, we know that there were two of them, Juro and Goro, with Juro being the older brother. The names are sometimes also given as Sukenari and Tokimune, respectively, but I will use Juro and Goro here for clarity, because those are the better-known versions. The Soga was not their birth clan. They were the sons of a man named Ito Sukeyasu, who was in turn a member of the powerful Ito clan. 
The Ito were samurai, but not of huge consequence. They were a middling family in power and influence, though one branch of the family would later go on to become daimyo in their own right in Kyushu several centuries later. And we know that for some reason, their father fell afoul of a powerful samurai lord by the name of Kudonosuketsune. The most famous version of the story is the one I will recount here, but again, that story is of substantially later authorship than the actual events themselves. Anyway, the traditional reasons given for the dispute between Kudo and the Ito family involve an issue of land inheritance within the Ito family. And this is going to get a little confusing because, being good filial samurai, many members of the Ito family shared at least one character, Suke, in their name, so pretty much all of them are Ito Suke something. But bear with me here because this is important, and I should note again that I am recounting the traditional tale of revenge. A lot of this does not crop up in the written record until much later, but it's the most common version of the story, and so it's the one I'm going to tell you. So, in 1160, on his deathbed, the head of the Ito family, Ito no Suketaka, had to pick an heir. He had a choice between two men. The first was his stepdaughter's son, Kudo no Suketsune, who I should note is sometimes described as Suketaka's own illegitimate son. In other words, he slept with his own stepdaughter and conceived a son with her outside of wedlock. His second option was Ito no Suketaka. Suketaka's grandson, his legitimate son, was already dead. Suketaka would decide on his illegitimate bastard son, Kudo no Suketsune, rather than his grandson precisely for generational reasons. He felt that it made more sense to hand over his lands to a son rather than a grandson, despite the fact that his grandson was actually the older of the two men. However, when Suketaka then died in 1160, Kudo no Suketsune was not yet old enough to rule the Ito lands in his own right, so Suketchika was made regent until he came of age. Those of you with more of a sense for this kind of Game of Thronesy politics may have already guessed how this went badly wrong. Suketchika felt that as a legitimate son of the Ito family, he had been cheated out of his inheritance, which was instead being given to an illegitimate bastard. So he refused to relinquish his hold over the Ito lands, even once Kudo no Suketsune, the person he was ostensibly serving as regent for, had come of age. Kudo was, as you may have guessed, rather upset. He issued a series of complaints to the imperial court against Tsukechika, and as a result the two men had a sort of legal back and forth for a couple of years. The upshot of it all was that Kudo decided to do the natural thing when presented with a difficult legal case and have his opponent brutally assassinated. In 1175, he hired assassins to lay in wait for Ito no Suketchika, while the family head went on a hunt. Those assassins ambushed the Itos. Suketchika got away. His son and heir Sukeyasu, yes, one more Suke for you, did not. Sukeyasu's assassination left his two young sons, Goro and Juro, who were respectively five and three at the time, fatherless. Tsukechika himself survived, presumably substantially more cautious in his activities, and thus a much harder target for political assassinations. Fortunately for Kudonosuketsune, he would go ahead and get himself killed the old-fashioned way instead. Specifically, Itonosuketsuka was, among other things, charged with a very important task by the most powerful warrior of his time, Taira no Kiyomori. 
Tsukechika's role was to be the guardian of a young boy named Minamoto no Yoritomo, the eldest son of Taira no Kiyomori's defeated rival. In 1180, Yoritomo would manage to slip away from his Ito captors to a friendly family, the Hojo, after, naturally, seducing and sleeping with Ito no Tsukechika's daughter, resulting in an illegitimate child. Tsukechika, furious when he realized what had happened, drowned the young child, raised an army to go after Yoritomo, and was promptly beaten. In 1182, he committed suicide to escape the shame of defeat, and in the wake of his death, Kudo no Suketsune did finally reach the leadership position he'd hoped for. So the upshot of this game of family politics is that these two young boys are left fatherless, and the man who arranged their father's murder, Kudo no Suketsune, is now family head. In the aftermath, the boys were adopted by a cousin of the Ito family, Soga no Sukenobu, and raised to adulthood. That's how they become known as the Soga brothers rather than the Ito brothers. However, this name change did not divorce them from their family ties to the Ito clan or from the expectations of the samurai class. In later tellings of the story, the charge to get revenge appears almost immediately after the death of the father. The most famous version of the story has the boy's mother saying the following to them during their father's funeral. If a baby still in the womb can understand its mother's words, how much more should you boys, being five and three, understand what I have to say? When you become fifteen and thirteen years old, slay your father's enemy and show his head to me. Sukenobu raised the boys to adulthood, and then the two boys promptly swore an oath of blood revenge against their father's killer. They would not, as was expected of them, live under the same heaven as him. They are supposed to have spent years refining their fighting style and technique. In some versions of the story, they also go on a quest to recover their father's sword, taken by Kudonotsuketsune, a sword named Tomokirimaru. And in some stories, that weapon takes on an even greater association. It's sometimes described as a sword gifted to their father by the great warrior Minamoto no Yoshitsune one of the most famous warriors of the age, a story that makes no sense because Yoshitsune was all of 16 when their father died, and thus not really in a position to be gifting famous swords to anyone, but it makes for a great story. Anyway, the story continues that the two young boys train up and prepare for their ambush, and then eventually seize their chance in 1190 during what else but a massive hunt taking place in Minamoto no Yoritomo's court at the base of Mount Fuji. The plan was to ambush Kudonotsuketsune and kill him to avenge the death of their father. The two brothers then planned to go after Yoritomo to avenge the death of their grandfather, who had, you might remember, killed himself after losing a battle to Yoritomo. The two boys are supposed to have ambushed Kudo during the hunt when he was separated from the rest of the party. In the ensuing battle, the younger brother, Juro, was killed, but Goro succeeded in mortally wounding their father's killer. However, Goro was then promptly arrested, and the very next day he was executed by order of Minamoto no Yoritomo himself. The execution was ordered both because of the attack, which demonstrated disregard for Yoritomo's authority and the laws of the land, and because Yoritomo himself wanted to complete his own blood revenge against Itonosuke Chika, who had drowned his infant son. Later texts ascribe the following words to Yoritomo, justifying the execution of the remaining Soga brother. You have probably heard the misery I suffered at the hands of Itonosuke Chika. 
He killed my three-year-old son, and I was determined that the descendants of that man would not be allowed to live. These boys are his direct heirs. Put the living one to death at once, and then I shall order a memorial service for my son. Since the act itself is supposed to have taken place near Mount Fuji, not far from modern Hakone, today there are some monuments to the brothers you can visit at that site, as well as a small Shinto shrine dedicated to their spirits. And thus ends the tragic tale of the Soga brothers, except of course not really, because if that were the case, if it was just straightforward revenge, it would be worth talking about but not necessarily giving an episode to. What makes the Soga brothers in particular so fascinating is the way their story grew so far beyond this simple tale of vengeance and into this sort of fantastic cultural touchstone in Japan. The tale of the Soga brothers became this story that grew in the retelling and in its popularity so much, in fact, that it became the archetype of Katakiuchi revenge, the standard against which all attempts at blood vengeance would be judged. In the short term, this bloody quest for vengeance may have also inspired the first attempt by a samurai government to regulate the practice of revenge. The legal code of the Kamakura government, promoted in the 1230s, contains language around how to receive permission to pursue a feud, allowing samurai to exercise their prerogatives if they feel slighted, while maintaining some modicum of legal control over the practice. Anyway, the story of the Soga brothers seems to have caught on very quickly. The Soga Monogatari in particular became one of the classic Gunki Monogatari, the tales of martial heroism and glory that became a sort of class anthem for the samurai, the place in literature and culture where a young samurai would look to to figure out what it meant to be born a warrior. Initially, these tales would have been orally recited. They were only written down later, as before the Tokugawa period, the majority of self-identified samurai would not have been able to read, only the elites among them. This oral tradition also led, eventually, to the creation of four distinct versions of the Soga Monogatari text. Each one follows the same basic plot, but with slight variations. The most famous version is the Rufubon one, which dates roughly to the mid-1500s. It dresses up the story in all kinds of fun ways. For example, it makes Goro and Juro into more distinctive characters. Following a general trope of medieval Japanese literature, the elder brother Goro is portrayed as hot-tempered and somewhat over-the-top, while the younger brother Juro is subtle and more refined. He enjoys the more quality things in life. The Rufubon version also adds a fun romance between the young Juro and a female courtesan named Oisono Tora, and another romance between Goro and a courtesan named Keiwaizawa no Shosho. This element adds some great pathos, as the two brothers must then climactically refuse the chance at romance in order to focus on their revenge, really gives things that extra dash of spice. The Rufubon version is the most famous known version of Soga Monogatari. Unless I specify otherwise, this is the one I'll be referencing from this point on. In terms of its literary merits, Soga Monogatari itself tends to get dumped on today. It's not as highly regarded as the classic Heike Monogatari or even lesser-known warrior tales like the Taiheiki. And to be fair, the actual text is meandering, difficult to follow at points, and of course, in the tradition of that most famous of fan complaints, it does shoehorn in a romance that is tangential to the plot at best. But the fundamental story was very popular, and it's not hard to understand why. 
It's a tale of family and revenge, and one that goes a bit deeper than just guy kills father, so sons kill him. After all, Kudo's gripe with the Ito was not unjustified. Sukachika was not supposed to be the heir. Kudo was, and in many ways, sending the assassins was his own form of revenge for the seizure of his birthright. On the other end of the story, Minamoto no Yoritomo has the surviving Soga brother executed in order to get his own blood revenge for the death of his son. So really we have a story that is three tales of vengeance, not just one, and all of them reveal this intensely interpersonal conflict that just can't help but come off as very dramatic. So it probably will not surprise you to find out that the story of the Soga brothers was one of those things that really got caught up in, you guessed it, the Edo period mass media. In part, this is unsurprising. During the 200-odd years of Tokugawa peace, there was a growing appetite for media of any stripe to entertain the masses. Kabuki plays, bunraku puppet plays, woodblocks, emaki illustrated texts, on and on and on. The growing base of consumers demanded stories that would entertain them. And say what you will of the tale of the Soga brothers, bloody bloody vengeance is very entertaining. But there is more to it than that, of course. During the Tokugawa era, the samurai class was confronted with its fundamental paradox. It was a class of warriors governing a society with no more wars. And that raised some very thorny questions about how to justify the supremacy of the samurai class in an age when there was no longer an immediate threat to the community's personal safety. It also raised more long-term existential questions for the samurai. What did it mean to be a warrior or practice Bushido, the way of the warrior, when there were no wars to fight? Stories like the Soga Monogatari provided at least part of an answer to that question. To be a samurai meant a willingness to die to uphold the ties that bound you to others, your social superiors, including both your family and your lord, because in Confucianism those two are really reflections of the same thing. Loyalty to your lord and loyalty to your parents are both reflections of the same idea of social hierarchy and order. Thus, the story of the Soga brothers caught on among samurai because it gave them a sense of who they were supposed to be. Among commoners, meanwhile, the text became this sort of cipher for how to understand the samurai class as a whole. Commoners, who were fascinated by the violent and romanticized lives of the ostensible rulers of Japan, could get a taste of what that mindset was supposed to be like, nicely at a remove, of course, which really adds to the drama when you're not viewing the story as a model for how you're supposed to behave. The Soga story became a staple of Kabuki in particular, with countless Soga plays cropping up throughout the Edo period, many of them are still considered classics of the Kabuki genre. The Soga brothers could even appear as these sort of stable characters in other kabuki revenge tales, or as interludes in those stories. In more than a few of these kabuki revenge plays, a lonely seeker of vengeance is later revealed to be one of the Soga brothers in disguise. I've seen some estimates that the Soga brother plays were the most popular type of kabuki plot. I'm far from an expert on the form, but I would believe it. In particular, Soga plays were closely associated with the New Year's and the season of spring, since the Lunar New Year happens around the time spring begins. It became something of a tradition in the city of Edo in particular to put on Soga plays to celebrate the Lunar New Year, with the plays being performed in the span between January and May. Some of these Soga plays can get particularly anachronistic in their need to incorporate the brothers' story, 
For example, probably the most famous Soga play, Sukeroku, was set in the Edo period and starred, well, a man named Sukeroku, a dandy who frequented the bordellos of the Yoshiwara. Except it's revealed partway through that young Sukeroku is actually Soga Goro in disguise, scouting the Yoshiwara in order to locate his father's killer. This despite the fact that the play is set during the Edo period 700 years after the story of the Soga brothers. Anachronism be damned, though, Sukeroku was very popular and is today counted among the Kabuki Juhachiban, the 18 classics of the Kabuki stage. It's the most famous of the Soga plays, collectively called Soga Mono, but very, very far from being the only one. The role of the elder brother, Soga Goro in particular, became associated with a specific lineage of Kabuki actors, the Ichikawa Danjiro line. Kabuki acting, if you'll recall, is something that's taught via apprenticeship. The current head of a particular style of acting will train a successor and then adopt them, and that adopted son will take the stage name of their father. There have thus been 12 Ichikawa Danjiros, and the role of Soga Goro is particularly closely associated with them. Even those plays that don't actually include the Soga brothers still feel their influence. For example, I've always had some fondness for the somewhat obscure Go Taiheiki Shiraishi Banashi, the story of a courtesan and a country gal who discover they are long-lost sisters and that their father was killed by a samurai. They swear to undertake what else but bloody, bloody vengeance, and the model for their plans to ambush and kill their father's murderer is based on what else but the story of the two Soga brothers. They plan, like the Soga brothers, to strike when their target's guard is down. And if you're wondering, spoilers, yes, they do get him. In addition to its pop cultural influence, it can be argued that the popularity of the Soga Monogatari resulted in that story becoming the basis for one of the most unique institutions of Tokugawa-era law, the highly regulated practice of Katakiuchi blood revenge. During the Tokugawa period, a samurai, and eventually even a non-samurai, could apply for a legal permit to revenge themselves upon the murderer of a family member. However, this practice was very carefully regulated, and among many of those regulations were ones derived in part from the Soga Monogatari. For example, the Soga story sets the precedent of who can apply for a permit for vengeance. After all, it's not Itonosuke Chika who avenges the death of his son, even though his son was killed in 1175 and he did not die until seven years later. In some versions of the story, he himself is responsible for charging his grandsons with the act of getting vengeance for his son, abdicating that responsibility himself. A precise rationale for this is not provided in the Soga Monogatari, but in later years one was derived. Revenge, fundamentally, is a hierarchical act. A person shows respect for someone socially above them by obtaining revenge for their death, demonstrating loyalty beyond this world. Thus, a person who is socially above the victim cannot be the one to take revenge. A father cannot avenge a son, an older brother cannot avenge a younger brother. This was written into the Tokugawa laws on Katakiuchi, and the idea itself again first appears in Soga Monogatari. Some of the prohibitions of Tokugawa law were also designed to avoid situations like the ones seen in Soga Monogatari. For example, it was illegal to seek revenge for a killing committed as a legal act of revenge. There could be no back-and-forth katakiuchi between families, 
a provision designed specifically to avoid the sort of escalating blood feud shown between the Ito, Kudo, and Minamoto. In recent years, the story of the Soga brothers has fallen off somewhat in popularity, likely because it was so closely associated with Kabuki during the Edo period, and that art form is not quite as popular as it once was. However, particularly during the early age of film in Japan, the Soga Monogatari was still well-regarded enough to receive three separate film adaptations, one in 1908, one in 1915, and one in 1920. So what can we learn from this exciting tale of vengeance? Well, for starters, I think its enduring popularity really says something about not only the intersection of samurai values and Confucianism, but about the seeming universality of some of those values. Both Confucianism and the samurai ethos are highly particular. Confucianism posits that some people are superior to others based on their moral virtue, and the entirety of samurai identity as a warrior class is based around some people being, well, not warriors, and thus not sharing those values. And yet, not just samurai, but a broad audience of Japanese found this story irresistible for centuries, and that makes sense, because who among us is so forgiving as to be unable to identify with that impulse for revenge? It's really quite cathartic when it's on stage. Second, the growth and evolution of the story is really fascinatingly emblematic, of the sort of transitions these tales go through on the journey from becoming history to popular folktale, from a small section of the Azuma Kagami to one of the most recognizable protagonists in Japanese history. For those reasons, and also because who doesn't love a good revenge story, the Soga Monogatari, the tale of the two Soga brothers, is well worth remembering. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Joshua Vasquez, Matthew Holloway, and to Patreon user Salyavin for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we start the first part of a multi-part series on one of the fascinating clans of the Civil War era, the later Hojo.